podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. And it was the playoff special. And I'm reading it going, there's a second Manchester club? (laughs) (laughs) If you're sitting around and you're playing cards, you don't feel like a sportsman, put it that way. Maybe every activity is a sport, right? So, so let's say croquet sport, poker is a sport, right? But then you can have like football's like ten out of ten, and maybe poker's like a one or a two. Yeah. So yeah, yeah so yeah, it's a sport, but is it actually like a sport? Sport. 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 <laughs> I see. Can we start the podcast? Let's let's start the podcast. All right, guys. This is the Talking Texas podcast. I'm Daniel Taluk. I'm Carl Anka. Have Hope is in Nigeria at the moment. We have given him the link to kind of phone in, but uh, we are expecting that Have Hope will not make it. But luckily enough in his place, we have uh, Steven Tudor. How are you doing, man? I'm good, mate. How are you? I am I am fantastically fine. Um, hey. He is a Manchester City fan. Would we call you just a general football writer? Yeah, yeah, just kind of freelance right about, but predominantly City, I guess. Yeah, so where can the people find you before we start? Uh, I'm on Twitter at the Daisy Cutter one hmm. because uh, I started out with uh, my own website called the Daisy Cutter, so it went from there. So I will link, uh, the, you, you have a website as well, so I will link that in the description so people can look at it. So thank you very much for coming on. If you haven't already, follow us on Twitter at Talking Tactics, follow us on Facebook, Instagram. And on SoundCloud, you can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts. We've talked with with Paula Sorens last week and talk about Manchester United. We talked about Ra- with Raj Baines on was it Thursday um, about Tottenham. So today is going to be our Manchester City look. Um, but before we start, let's do Confederations Cup. Now, Carl, off air, we had a good brief chat about video technology. So I'm not going to pretend like I'm watching the Confederations Cup. I think it's a the Mickey Mouse of uh, international competitions. Even though, if you look at it, it probably is the hardest competition to get in, like in in world football. You have to win either the Euros, Copa America, whatever they do in Asia, (laughs) AFCON, or you have to bribe FIFA in order to get the World Cup. (laughs) Right. So those are basically your ins to get in. It's had a very interesting origins as a tournament. It started off in Saudi Arabia in, I believe... I think it might be less than 30 years old. Someone can correct me on that. Mm. There's a really good piece by Andy Thomas on SB Nation about the history of it. Basically, uh, Saudi Arabian prince decided you want to have a football tournament in Saudi Arabia. The champions of various continents to play against Saudi Arabia in a knockout round robin tournament two or three times in a row. It made quite a lot of money. Eventually, FIFA got involved because they went, oh, this is making loads of money. And now we have a similar system that we have now. Interesting tidbit about the Confederations Cup is the winner of the Confederations Cup rarely wins the next year's World Cup. Hmm. I think the current holders are, I want to say the current holders are Spain. Brazil won. I remember Brazil defeated Spain and it was hilarious because PK missed that penalty and Mark Lawrence said uh, PK is not getting any cocoa tonight when the camera panned to Shakira because Mark Lawrence <laughs> does when he's on Lawrence. <laughs> so do I. I think he's hilarious. So the Confederation Cup this year is very interesting. Portugal's sending a near, have sent a nearly full-powered squad, as have Chile. Again, another season where Alexis Sanchez is playing football throughout the summer. 
Um, so Chile have a full strength squad, Portugal full strength squad. Germany have fielded the kids, so there are. I don't think Germany has a member of their squad under the age of thirty, and they've got their two striking options only have four or five caps between them. Mm. Uh, but the real, the real interest for this tournament is FIFA are using it to trial uh, VAR, which is their video assistant referee, which it works a bit like TMO in rugby. The big decision in the game, the referee can pause the game and go off to the VAR and. There's a lovely man in the stadium who can rewind and replay and go back and forth through things to see if certain decisions were offside or if there was a foul off the ball. So it has ruled in the Portugal-Mexico opener where Pepe got a touch on the ball from a free kick and uh, it was taken to VAR. And it took about 30 seconds for the video referee and the person reading it to assess the fact the goal was offside and the referee chalked it off. It was a bit similar to the last World Cup, if you remember when we had the goal line clearance, where we didn't know if the ball had fully crossed the line. I believe it was Ecuador playing in the last World Cup, and the goal line technology was used for the first time. And uh, Jonathan Pierce did not understand what was going on. And <laughs> what was going on? Is it in? Is it in? I don't know. I don't know. And it took Martin Keown to sort of politely squeeze his thigh and calmly explain to him what he was seeing and what images he was seeing, uh, which brought that great moment where the ball went to the side netting and Pierce is screaming and uh, Keon's just gone side netting, Jonathan. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's caused a big debate right now because you've got, for a long time, you've had people saying that more technology in football would slow football down and VAR, VAR you know, it's not entirely foolproof. It takes around about 30 seconds for any video assistant to, to come to a decision. You know, it's still is with the referee. So much like in rugby, you have the referee will stop playing, go up to the video assistant go, could you please tell me if there's any reason why I should not give this goal? 30 seconds or so will pass. And then the referee will then make a decision there. So what we had in the second goal between Chile and Cameroon, uh, Sanchez had a tap, didn't quite go in. Vargas managed to get a tap in, went in. He's looked to both assistant referees because he was offside. So the goal looked like it had been chalked off. Then it went to VAR. Then the goal was given. And what I found really interesting was three goal celebrations at once because he'd scored. Then he did his first celebration. Then he realized he was offside. Then he stopped. Then he realized he got the goal from the VAR. So he started celebrating again. And then you had this sort of weird, disjointed celebration nature of football. So, gentlemen, uh, I suppose my question to you is where do we stand in video referees in football? I think it's a necessary evil. I think... It's not fair, really, that we get 3,000 HD slow motion images of controversial decisions that happen over the course of 90 minutes in a space of like six, seven seconds. And the referee gets no indication or um, inclination of those replays. And everyone in the stands could know it. I, I, I think there was a rule where you can't show replays in the stadium just to kind of protect referees from if they make a bad decision. But everyone at home gets to see replays and replays of controversial decisions. If there's a handball in the box, if there's a tackle in the box, if there's a red card incident, we all get to see it. So I don't think it's it's correct that the audience gets to see it, but the referee doesn't. The issue becomes how much time does it take to get to the right decision? Um, and I feel the necessary evil component comes in that the more you practice it, the better you'll get at it. So maybe if you can, if you can get 30 seconds down to 15 seconds 
over the course of four or five years or so. I would assume or feel like I'd be okay with that, you know? And also it would become a thing where if you do it for five seasons, you'll just get used to it. It'll just become a part of football. So even if you do have to wait 30 seconds, it's like, all right, it's time for a replay. And maybe coaches will have time to do like little team talks. I can go use the bathroom, you know, just whatever. Mm. It's It's been coming, hasn't it? Um, yeah. The demand for this has just been kind of increasing and increasing. Uh, and we, you just feel that you've reached a point now where they had to do something about it. Um, I think it's right for them to trial this in, in this cup. I think it's any criticism of it so far kind of forget the fact that, you know, it, there's going to be teething errors. The whole point of it, uh, a teething problem, sorry, the whole point of it was to kind of, you know, iron out those creases. So, yeah, if it's taken a while right now, I'm fine with it because we should shorten the time as, as we progress and if it becomes more of a regular fixture and people get more used to it. Um, you'd expect the time to come down and that. Um, my concern is football is contentious and arguing about it in the pub afterwards and <laughs> arguing about it at the time. And, you know, how much of that is not just, you know, kind of a bit of banter, but actually a necessary ingredient. Um, mm. So that's, that's my only concern. Basically staring right at it as a sport, if I distance myself from it, it needs it without question for me. But football as a, as a fan then how much do i want it i'm really conflicted there because it's fun you know when it, when the ref make unless obviously it's your team that suffers the ref makes a mistake <laughs> it's it's a lot of fun it, it adds an essential ingredient to football for me kind of contentious instance eh. <laughs> <laughs> you don't agree the no, no 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 i don't i don't because 2009 let's, still weighs on you Carl, just, just 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 quickly. Let's take tennis then. Tennis didn't have replays. And mm-hmm. I, I suppose you could say there was a nostalgia about the game if you think about like John McEnroe, like, you cannot be serious. Like he he he, <laughs> he couldn't go to the video replay. But now that we have video replay, I feel like it works, it functions quickly. They even slow it down to where like there's more tension with the decision. So it's become a, a part of tennis. And I feel like the fact that we have the capability and don't use it, um, it's just wrong, I guess. The former football benevolent footballing dictator that was Sepp Blatter, uh, when <laughs> his argument was always the one of the true joys about football and one of the true assets football had over most sports was that be a professional or amateur, be it Sunday league, be it park, be it beach, his, the, his argument was essentially football remains the same. You know, the big plays in, in the French Open and in Wimbledon, it has become very interesting for fans to stop and pause and look to the screen to see if the ball's been hit. Counterpoint to that would be how we've got video referees in rugby. Rugby has a TMO, which is a very similar system. Cameras watching the game all the time. The referee can pause the game and go to the ref video assistant and go, is there any reason why I should send this player off? Is there any reason why this thing was offside? Is there any reason why I cannot give a try? For rugby traditionalists, their argument against the TMO is that every big decision is given to the TMO. Yeah. Seeing it now is you're seeing quite a few high-level referees who put everything, defer everything to the video referee. And also what we've seen from rugby is that the TMO offers so many angles, so many plays, that you can, you can be there for two or three minutes and still have absolutely no idea if legal or not. Um, I think... Video assistant referee wouldn't necessarily give us a guarantee that we're going to fix the offside rule because no one properly understands what the offside rule is. 
Are you saying that the technology is so good it it would become more confusing? I'm simply putting forward arguments that Sir Blatter put forward. So these why would anyone ever do that, Carl? (laughs) (laughs) Sir Blatter said it, so yes, I agree. (laughs) I'm not saying I agree. I'm not saying I agree. (laughs) We know we're 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 a good full-bodied podcast here, so I'm just putting forward all arguments for our listeners. Fair enough, fair um, enough. I'm just saying. I'm just saying what I know from watching rugby. Uh, in that, nearly every time a try is scored, unless it is clear as day a breakaway, it will go to TMO because the referee wants to double check. Speaking Cole, of Seth Bladder, though, um, I did like. <laughs> could this be corrupted? <sighs> as, as in, like yes and no. No, no, no. As in, would it be easier to get to the assistant referee that does video rather than the actual referee? It could, in no. theory, yeah, yeah. It's, it's... Have you guys I mean, ever watched Enemy of the State? Where, where <laughs> yeah. what's, what's the actress's name? Regina Hall. She's with Will Smith. And she's like, so who's going to monitor the monitors of the monitors? Yeah. Uh, who's going to monitor the monitor of the referee? We if need Gene right, Hackman, the, is what you're saying. Was it Gene Hackman in that? Yeah, it, it was Gene Hackman, Will Smith. Who's going to monitor the monitors of the monitors? So who's going to referee the referees of the referee? Gene Hackman. <laughs> <laughs> How old is Gene Hackman? He's got to be 80. Do you think it slowed down rugby too much? So I'm a I'm a nineties baby, so all I've all I've known is professional rugby and TMO mm. rugby. Um sometimes it's very useful, but other times you have a try that's been scored and you are spending three minutes looking at the screen just going, get on with it, get on with yeah. it. Yeah. To give you another sporting perspective. In the rugby thing, sometimes having more information makes it harder to make the decision. Yeah, it's, it's what Daniel was saying there. It's it's there is that danger where it, it just convolutes it even further. Mm. Well, Stephen, I, I guess as the the Englishman here, no no offense, Carl, but I still think you're good at it. Um, I'm Welsh. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> this this kind of colors this question differently, I guess. Um, do you think that having moments like the hand of God, or you you know when um when Frank Lampard hit the bar against Germany and it clearly crossed the line, mm. um, but you know it was really, also I saw. Um, what was it? It was like a sports science kind of deal where if if the ball hits the bar and hits the bar again, it's confirmed that it crossed the line based on like some sort of physics science thing. So if the ball ever hits the bar twice, there's no way it can well, so hit the it, bar and not cross the line. So it could hit the bar, hit the goal line, come back and hit the bar, and it'd be it would count as a goal. It, well, you know, it's it's almost like um if if a shot is going to the to the crossbar. Mm. And it hits, and the the backspin it hits when it hits the ground. If it if the backspin comes back and hits the crossbar again from the underside, right? There's no way it hasn't mm. crossed the line at the bottom, just right. based on some weird uh. size. Yeah, so you guys can look that up and research it. I'm sure it's on pirated on YouTube somewhere. But um, <laughs> kind of to your point before, would you rather have the hand of God than than not have it? Well, I mean, the hand of God's a perfect example for me because the linesman in question passed away sadly recently, didn't he? And um, I wasn't aware of this, but there was a quote he gave about 10 years ago where he basically talked about the incident. Clearly, see, it was handball, but the referee didn't refer to him. The referee just ran back to the centre circle. And there was no kind of direct line of communication. I mean, you know, I'm not sure that that technology existed back in 86, whether he had the kind of, you know, they could kind of talk to each other, but um, but that's a simple thing that just is inconceivable today. You know, you've got the kind of 
those idiots who just stand on the goal line, what do they do? I do not know. <laughs> but they're actually, in theory... That was, that was, I, what I mean, is their point? They are stealing a living. Absolutely. But in theory, I am fully behind them being there if only they actually did something. Because they see incidents right in front of their faces and they don't move. They're impassive. So... I think we have a technology in place now where there's just a far better kind of lines of communication between, you know, the, the linesman and the assistant referee, um, assistant referees and the referee. And so you wouldn't really conceive such incidents like the hand of God occurring again. Um, mm. and, and so we've reached that threshold and now evidently football wants to take it on to the next level now with, with video. Now, I don't know how I feel about it, to be honest. Like I say, I'm very conflicted about it all. But, same, same. Yeah, but you look back at previous incidents. I mean, the Lampard one is baffling, isn't it? Absolutely baffling because you can clearly see it in real time. <laughs> you can clearly see that it goes over. So what are we doing? So I don't know. Do we do we try and eradicate that kind of incompetence from kind of match day officials? Uh, yeah, I mean it's common sense too. But at the same time, I think we're going to lose something which is quite important to football, which is you know. The fact that we're talking about it now, the Lampard, and we can just you know, shorthand it as well. Lampard, hand of guards, kind of 66. And they're part of football's lexicon. And, you know, we could lose that, rightly or wrongly. Very yeah. interesting that for so long we were anti-technology in football where the 2006 World Cup was decided via video referee. Zidane didn't get sent off, yeah. doesn't get sent off in the 2006 yeah. World Cup if the stadium doesn't see the replay because the referee mm. completely missed it. And I, there was a great interview with Florian Menudo. He goes, I don't, where he said, why, why are you all anti-football? You decided the 2006 World Cup using technology and you don't, you, no one ever acknowledges that. And the flip side then, right, is, you know, if it wasn't seen, how aggrieved would the Italians have felt? So, you know, it, yeah. it's kind of, there is that flip side. You guys don't think the Italians would have been like, it's Matarazzi, we get it? <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> Let's wrap this up very quickly. Would you have... Via, would you have the video assistant in the Premier League next season? Next season? Oof. Yeah, why not? Just try it. The, like, the sooner you start it, the sooner we'll get it to the best it can be. So start it next season, ASAP. World Cup, would you have it as well? Yeah. Whoa, 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 whoa. World Cup, not yet. Here we go. <laughs> like, you know, Double H and I, we, we kind of hold the World Cup as like the pinnacle of football. So I'm not sure you can use dodgy technology yet to decide the most important competition. <laughs> so 2022, is that the next one? Then you can do it after you've had, you know, four or five years of, of practice. But you don't just throw some rookie surgeon that. into heart surgery like Mm-mm. They have to watch and study first. It's like Steve, a freshman medical student at this point. Like he's not operating on me. Would you have it? Champions League, Premier League, World Cup next season? Yes or no? Um, I think it's too soon. I, I think let's see how this this summer goes, and let's see if they do iron out the creases, and let's see what they propose. And I'd like to see, and this is an impossibility, I accept that, but I would like to see kind of you know the general public, the fans. Kind of giving a voice in this as well. Mm. They won't. It'll just be done, you know, with a, with or without our consent. But personally, I, I think it's too soon. I think we'll be looking at maybe, you know, at least twelve months, twenty four months on before it becomes more of a, a regular fixture in football. Uh, I'd have it next season, but I'd have it work on a challenge system similar to tennis. So I'd, I'd like give to keep that anyway. Team, yeah, I'd like to give each team four challenges throughout the game. 
think it could add an interesting strategic element to football as well. You could imagine Jose Mourinho using a VAR system in a very different way as compared to us in Wenger. Um, yeah. I was going to interrupt you and I was going to say I could imagine a manager like Tony, Tony Pulis being so anti-technology that he just wouldn't ever use his challenges. <laughs> Even if it was clear, it would be like out of out of spite or maybe <laughs> that he just wouldn't use them. Whereas someone like maybe Eddie Howe would use all his four challenges within the first 20 minutes. Yeah. So that could be an interesting kind of dynamic. Also, it could be talking points as in like here there's NFL, right, which has challenges so that the head coach throws out the red flag and then he challenges it. You get two in a game. If you get both right, then you get a third one. The topic of conversation is why didn't he use the challenge or why or why did he use the challenge? He could have saved it for a later potentially controversial moment. So maybe it adds a level of, yo, the coach was stupid. The manager was dumb. He should have challenged that tackle that happened in the box, but he didn't get it. And also it would put Arsene Wenger's I didn't see it. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you guys know this thing where like the, the reporters would be like um, – that challenge that happened in the 20th minute, do you think it was a penalty? Well, I didn't have a good look at it. <laughs> he, he wouldn't have that excuse anymore, would he? No, nope, would... I miss that. That's, that's what I was talking about with, you know, these, these kind of elements of football we'd, we'd lose. It, it infuriates when he says it, but it also makes you laugh. True. <laughs> this, is why, this is why you'd have to bring the challenge system. For every element you lose, you have to bring in something else. Um, Going so, back to Pulis as well, I can very much imagine him not realizing <laughs> what you need to do to ch- make it challenge. Just throwing his cap to the floor in disgust and thinking that battle suffice. Or him just getting really <laughs> angry that the that the other manager did a challenge. Yeah, yeah. I am. I am definitely leaning towards just go ahead and let's get this over with because it's an an inevitability. Uh, I think. So yeah. But before we get to Manchester City, a couple transfer topics that I think are are noteworthy. Cristiano Ronaldo, um, his tax situation has led papers to speculate that perhaps he could be going to Paris Saint-Germain or Carl's favorite team, Manchester United. Now, part of me feels like you don't want to get gassed just because you don't want to be disappointed. I think William Shakespeare is misquoted as saying expectation is the root of all heartache. So I, I kind of feel like you're couching your expectation here. But it does feel like something that... That Ronaldo could do, where like Messi gets in tax situations, but he has a specific loyalty to Barcelona, where it's like, you guys paid for my growth hormone thing when I was a kid, and I've been, I came up from La Masia, so so I don't have to leave. Ronaldo's been in Portugal, he's been in England, he's been in Spain, so why wouldn't he leave if perhaps he could enjoy Spain more? You're being taxed, what is it? I think it's $16 million, which is probably 12 million pounds or something like that, like... Why not leave if I don't feel like Madrid are backing me? Right. Okay. So redacted, 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 libel, redacted. Um, <laughs> allegedly, it fixes everything. We've we've talked in the Talking Tactics WhatsApp group as to why Karim Benzema feels slightly aggrieved to the other foreign players at Real Madrid. Allegedly, allegedly, allegedly. You sign for Real Madrid. There, there is there is a there is a dark cabal of lawyers that work with foreign Real Madrid players to help them pay less tax. Allegedly, 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 Benzema rejected his choosing to work with his lawyers from France, even though he was paying less tax than what he should be paying. He was paying a lot more tax compared to other non-Spanish players in the Real Madrid squad. And this was like the main fissure 
for the last two or three seasons. So anytime you're wondering why is Benzema annoyed, allegedly, 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 Benzema's annoyed because he's playing X percentage more on his wages and tax compared to his other players. So we know that. Like, no matter what amount of tax Cristiano Ronaldo is paying right now, allegedly, 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 he's paying a lot less than he should be. That sentence might get me in a lot of trouble. He doesn't listen to this podcast. Fine. Uh, I love you, Cristiano. Please don't sue me if you find this podcast. Uh, uh, <laughs> sue me, Cristiano. I would love that. I would love it. <laughs> no, 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 Carl. If, if Cristiano was like Cristiano Ronaldo sues Carl Anka of Talking Tactics Podcast, that would be terrific marketing. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, it'd be the making of us. I always say that. <laughs> from a previous <laughs> website, the data so I used to publish things, and people say, whoa, you can't publish that. I tell you what, so if a Sun newspaper sue me, that would be the making of me. That would be the greatest thing ever. All <laughs> <laughs> uh, news is good news. Let's not, let's not buy too much into to Real Madrid tax problems. So I, would, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't think too much into the fact that the tax or money reasons are reasons why Ronaldo wants to leave. I don't think there are Do many you problems. Want him? Pod- I guess would be my next logical question then. No. You- well, why? What's the point? It's two hundred million for one of the best goals for You'll one of the best goals. You'll make that back in a year. It's Ronaldo. You yeah. know how many it's, shirts you sell. Money, the only question would be, um, as kind of as Raj pointed out last week, Manchester United are an Adidas club, and Ronaldo is a Nike guy. Yep. So maybe that's a conflict of interest, which could open a door, perhaps, to City or PSG, who are sponsored by Nike or Nike, as you guys weirdly say. So <laughs> you know what City haven't even been mentioned, and I'm maybe speaking out out of school here, but someone told me a few days ago, just literally 48 hours before all this broke about Ronaldo, that they'd heard, and I very very much trust this person. You know, I'm, I'm not one of these people who spouts kind of in the know kind of nonsense. Uh, trust me, this this guy does know his onions, and he said that City have an absolute shocking transfer in the pipeline, imminent. And very shocking, and a name that's not been mentioned anywhere. We've not been linked to this player. Now, we were speculating because he himself doesn't know the name of the person. And then, oh, the only name we could come up with is Neymar. Um, I'm not suggesting for an instant that it's going to be City and we're going to go in for Ronaldo. The timing of those two things kind of did ring a few bells with me. I can say from a City perspective, I am scared to death of, of United getting Ronaldo. Does anyone here have the kind of Mourinho-Ronaldo relationship memorized? Was that a good one? Civil. Civil. So, so he wasn't one of the Sergio Ramos Casillas defectors. The Mourinho spell at Real Madrid was the beginning of the this is Cristiano Ronaldo's side now. Main point of difference between Pellegrini, I believe, was the boss at Real Madrid before. Yes, yeah. yes. And the main difference point between Pellegrini and Mourinho was that Mourinho increased the verticality to Real Madrid's side. So we can do very quick counterattacks and we can do more long balls and Ronaldo gets on the end of them, then he can just score. And it became less of Ronaldo the crosser and more of the Ronaldo the goal scorer. For that, you know, you know it, it seemed fruitful. It seemed very much a Mourinho going, I'm going to turn you into a, one of the best players in the world, even more so. And Ronaldo being very happy to go along with it. Hmm. No other rumors of dissension. I interviewed Renee Millenstein last week, and he, what I didn't know, I knew that he coached Ronaldo at United and that he was Ferguson's assistant for seven years. And what I didn't know was just how integral he was to the development of Ronaldo. Um, essentially, 
uh, Sir Alex Ferguson told Rene, just groom him, bring him along, just you know, from this kind of precocious teen you know, into being a superstar. And he told me something that was really struck struck me as uh, as fascinating in that in the first week of him being at, at United, Ronaldo told Rene Mersteen, I'm going to play for Real Madrid one day. I'm going to win you know, Euros with Portugal. I'm going to have this many caps. I'm going to kind of score this many goals. He had it all mapped out from the age of, what age was he when he went to United? Was it 18 or 19 Please. perhaps? Yep. You know, he knew who he was going to be and he was determined to be that person. Now, as again, as a City fan, I'm not the biggest fan of Cristiano Ronaldo, you know, <laughs> not as a player, I mean, but as a person. Uh, you know, he's, he's somewhat of a hate figure for me. I, I'd even go as far as to say. Um, I'm very much in the messy camp. But when you hear that, you think, wow. I mean, that's a self-made man there. Regardless of his talent, which is phenomenal, he has made the person, you know, he's built the man that he was determined to be. Um, how much of, of, of this week's development throws the spanner in the works there? I don't know. But this is a guy who meticulously plans his, his image and his future. Mm. And so I, I, I don't know how that plays into, you know, because, you know, curveballs happen in life and you, 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 know, you, you go a, a different way to what you intended at times. But I can't see Cristiano Ronaldo making snap decisions is what I'm saying. Mm. That's a good point. We could kind of transition into, I guess, Donnarumma as well as like mapping your career out. Um, AC Milan offered him a contract of 80,000 euros a week. But inside the contract was a buyout clause of $100 million. So he doesn't want to tie himself down to Milan and perhaps, you know, just be stuck on a sinking ship um, with a $100 million buyout clause for the next five years and nobody comes in and gets him. So his agent is trying to, uh, Mino Raiola is trying to maneuver a move to Madrid, perhaps. And he's behind the Italy goal um, at the under 21 euros. And yes, it, the Italian fans threw money at his goal. <laughs> <laughs> just based like fake dollar bills. They just threw it behind his goal. And he looked I back. thought it was real at first, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I thought it was, it was pounds because I, I thought mm. it was like purple money. So I was like, who has purple money? Is it the euros? <laughs> but then it was, it was black and white, like American president faces. So mm. very weird. Is making him mad going to endear him to you? I don't necessarily know, but also it could be, you know, Juventus fans or Inter fans just trying to make him even more mad. Like, hey, go Spain. Like, we don't want you in Italy at all. So <laughs> people are like, oh, it's it's more the agent than it is him. And, and to a certain extent, I I agree that, like, if, if you're a teenager, then your advisors might be more important. Yeah, you're the like, figures. Yeah. So, and, but also when I was 18, I feel like I knew what I wanted to do by and large, even if it was stupid, it was still my decision. So mm. if he wants to leave Milan, I'm not sure it's like, hey, yo, you need to leave. It's probably like, I want to leave and we want to leave now. I, I, I just think knowing what you want to do with your career, perhaps, kind of plays into that. So, I just think it's incredibly sad for the situation, to be honest. I, I think his pathway, was his destiny, was to have five or six brilliant seasons with AC Milan. Um, let's not forget they're a club on the rise right now as well with fresh investment. So it's entirely conceivable they could be challenging Juve for, for honours in the next couple of seasons. Um, and then after that, I don't think anyone in Italy would have begrudged him a big money move from the Spanish Giants or to the Premier League. So I just think it's really sad. 
Um, you know, when I'm watching it from afar, I just think it's just such a shame because he's a young lad and his reputation now, you know, he's going to get turned into a hate figure. And it was so necessary because he's potentially a phenomenon and he's, you know, potentially, you know, the next Italian keeper for the next God knows how many years and to be a national icon. And now he's just, it's going to be all tainted. I kind of still think he will be. Just, yeah. 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 Because he's he's 18, goalkeepers last forever. So he'll he'll be around for 20 <laughs> years. Yeah, he'll be around, like Buffon's how old? 40? Or 39, perhaps? He's going to be 40 and playing in the next World Cup. So, so yeah. this kid has potentially 20 years left. Obviously, he's like six foot five or six foot six as an 18 year old. So, who knows how big he could be and how, you know, his uh, proportions affect joints and knees and things like that. I think Buffon's like one of the perfectly built goalkeeper. So, he could last that long. So, who knows how long a giant teenager is going to last. But still, goalkeepers last forever, like I said. So, it, it's still conceivable that he could do well with Italy. He just won't be endeared with Milan fans. That's kind of like the fairy tale story where you're a boyhood club at AC Milan and you play there for mm. 50 years and you know you win however many Scudettos and Euro World Cup, etc. But it's still he could still be good for Italy. I just think he's Oh he will, might... undoubtedly. He would have had the kind of he's he's you know, the love affair with Milan that was mm. destined to be. Yeah, yeah. So so I, I guess we could just take this question off the top. This question is from Rahimsky at Talking Tactics and the Daisy Cutter one. Do you think the precedent that Raiola and Mendez have set will inevitably lead to restrictions or sanctions from FIFA? And off air, we kind of tried to break down what this question might mean. And reading it again, I feel like the precedent is Raiola and Mendez having exceptional control over players' careers and kind of ruining those kind of fairy tale stories that we mentioned. So will agent power, I suppose, or super agent power be restricted by UEFA or FIFA? I don't necessarily see how that's possible because agents are just agents and they're always going to be kind of shady people who are trying to get money for their client and themselves. And as long as football is going to be dominated by money, the people who control the money are always going to have power. Mm. So how do you put sanctions or restrictions on that? Only look at what's going on at Barcelona, what's got what happened at Barcelona last season or the season before that, and what's going on at Atletico Madrid right now with transfer bans uh, for reasons similar to essentially dancing with the devil for too long. There's a very good piece on the Guardian. I think Jonathan Wilson wrote it about how we're now in the you know we've had we've gone through the age of the manager, we've gone through the age of the player, and now we're in the age of the super agent. And it more or less profiled why Mendes is one of the most powerful men in football. And in football, compared to sports agency in, say, basketball, is that in basketball, it, the decision is made by the player. So, you know, right now in basketball, Paul George is told the Pacers that he doesn't want to resign in 2008. He wants to go into free agency. So the player has decided he doesn't want to resign a contract. Whereas what you've got in football is, the decision is made by the agent. So the agent touts the player's name across Europe and goes Pogba on my books at Juventus. And Pogba has got this, he's got this, he's got this. He's young. He's one of the most talented players in this. He won the Golden Boy. He's got this. Would you be interested in buying him? And then when the agent understands which players want him, he will then filter that information back to the player and the player will go, oh, okay, maybe. Um, so it's, it's slightly different in Europe. I might have completely got explanation wrong. 
but it's, it seems to have worked and it seems to have worked for a long long time it's just that third party ownership is well not completely gone but is is somewhat frowned upon big sam and his pint of wine would have you believe uh and uh there are less shell clubs so while there are distinct partnerships like for Tess and chelsea and whatnot there are less uh so there are maybe one or two clubs in south america that don't exist uefa tends to get this stuff the best out of them footballing federations and hopefully this ends when this generation of players stops and then you get something else because as we discussed before everything in football was cyclical so we could easily return back to the age of the super manager so i could very easily see you know Pep doesn't strike me as someone that wants to play George Mendes or Raul's games. So it could be very interesting to see what happens there. It, it's 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 down to partnerships, really. And I think it's stuff like Jose Mourinho having the same agent worries me more than yeah. 300 players on his books. Is the fact that he has players on his books and he has big name managers on his books as well. Stamp that out. I think that would probably most likely be the next step. Absolutely. I mean, there are steps that can be taken. And as Carl said, then that, that's for me the most worrying aspect. I think it's despicable that kind of two individuals can just carve up football in the manner that they do and dominate this, this summer and kind of agitate for moves for the players. And they're a canter on the sport, quite frankly. There are ways to stamp out. Stamp it, out. Um, it would be a drastic step, but one step I would love to see introduced in the future is if the governing bodies of football simply outlawed agents who weren't former footballers. Because there are many footballers who go into becoming agents. I'm not saying they're all good. They're far from it. But they have a certain integrity. They have the players' interests at heart. They know what they're talking about. You know, They're involved in the game. They've learned from mistakes from their own playing career mm. and their own agents. So... I can't see why that isn't possible, where it can be basically put in as law that the only agents out there with a license who are allowed to be football agents are former players. It's like what, I say, it's a drastic step, and it's a far-fetched step. What no. kind of former player, though? Couldn't Rayola sign for some team and play like yeah. <laughs> yeah. 30 seconds, and then they're like, I was a footballer, so I've met the requirement? Well, uh, yeah, there'd have to be kind of certain structures put in place in, into the mm. law where, you know, you'd have to have played for a you know, minimum of, of, you know, however long um, and to be, you know, a registered player. But, yeah, because there's always going to be a way around it. But then again, there's always a way around every law, you know, in, in and out of football. <laughs> it's a drastic step and it's a far-fetched one. But like I say, we are at that level now where we are having to look for far-fetched solutions. True, true. Is it, is it wrong that half of me kind of respects their hustle, though? <laughs> just like you played no football you're out of shape you put on a kind of good suit if you're Mendez you just kind of have this kind of amiable affable character if you're Viola and you can get Lukaku, Zlatan Pogba, Ronaldo, whomever you can just get them to sign with you and make as much money as you want it's an incredible like I'm considering that maybe I should have gone to economic class and become a football agent. It's <laughs> it seems like a really good hustle if you can get into it. So part of me's like, yeah, you're ruining football, but the other part is like, if I could be you, would I say no? And I don't think I would. I think I'd like to be them. They, they must be you know? incredibly charming individuals. Um, they must be. And, you have you know, to be. It's yeah. to balance the personality. Like I think Rayola has Balotelli, Zlatan, Pogba, and Lukaku. How do you balance those? Yeah, where they all feel like the number one client. Exactly. It, he, he has to be a master psychologist 
like Harry Gold from uh, Entourage. Hmm. It, it, <laughs> they're almost like boxing promoters. People hate boxing promoters. Don King, Eddie Hearn, Bob Arum, whomever. People hate those guys, but they make good fights. So if, if your agent can get you a good deal, maybe yeah. you stick with it. I think it's so, a very good comparison, that, to be honest. I think it, there is a lot of um, you know similarities there between the kind of the type of personality involved mm. to, to, you know, to reach the level that they're, that they're at. To the city segment, why we have you on, Stephen. Let's talk about super <laughs> agents. Um, do you think Guardiola's historical reliance on good on-the-ball fullbacks and lack thereof at City had negative impact on results this season? 100%. I mean, he said so himself towards the end of the season. Um, the, the baffling thing for me was someone as meticulous, as ultra-meticulous as Pep Guardiola went into the season with three, uh, sorry, four fullbacks who were 30-plus of age. Mm. And then, what was it, seven months later, then said in a TV interview, I can't play the style of football that I want because those positions are, you know, 33 and 34, 32 years of age. Well, he, he must have known that back in August. The only assumption I can make is that bids were made last summer and they fell through. And then he just had to adapt as we went along. He played inverted fullbacks for the first kind of nine games of the season, first 10 perhaps. Mm-hmm. And we won. We, you know, we were unbeaten the first 10 games of the season. Um, and then, well, we had the calamity at Spurs where we were just outplayed and outperformed and outmuscled and out everything for all 90 minutes. That exposed us truly. And that really worried Pep. I mean, on the surface, it's it's one result, it's one loss. But from there on, our season unraveled. And a major part of that was the fact that we did not have very athletic, very fit, very fast fullbacks at our disposal. And you can rest assured that he'll be looking to rectify that this summer. Um, and, you know, we're looking at a minimum of three uh, and possibly four coming in over the period of one transfer window. To, to remedy it because it was undoing last year. Mm. Am I correct? Like, zabalet is gone, Sanya's gone, Clichy's gone, mm-hmm. and who's the other one? Uh, Kolarov, but Kolarov will be kind of moved in as a kind of a backup centre-half. Yeah, and, you know, if need be, to play left-back, but I can't foresee him playing more than at most five games at left-back next season. Do, do you know or have an idea of what Guardiola's formation is going to be? Well, he's very fond of the three at the back and that has caused a lot of division amongst the, the Blue fan base because when you look at the... I can't remember what the stats are now, but it's quite staggering that on the occasions that we did play three at the back, uh, we drew more than we won. Whereas when we played four at the back, um, our results kind of you know dramatically improved. But from what I've been told, he's kind of determined to, to follow that through. I mean, essentially, our, our season in a nutshell... And I don't know if we're going to move on to kind of, you know, the grand project, as it were, of Pep Guardiola at City. But certainly last season, in a nutshell, was that Pep Guardiola threw everything at the players far too fast. And it was a trajectory of learning that they couldn't assimilate. They did not have the, you know, the faculties to, to kind of absorb it in the same manner as the players that he's had at Bayern and at Barca. Um, down to ability, and some of that, quite frankly, might well just be down to intelligence, but they could not absorb it and bring you know bring it all on board. And mm. so he realised halfway through that this was a major problem, and he regressed. He took one step back to take two forwards, 
Uh, he simplified matters. He went back to four at the back um, because the players were more familiar and comfortable in, the, in those positions. Can't foresee that happening this season. So, so you think it's more he he just needs time to to drill the players, or are the players mm. not capable? I think it's the latter. Because I, I, you know, over the course of a season, that's plenty of time, isn't it? Really, um, you know, if, if you kind of tot up how many hours that is on the training pitch and, mm. and how many hours of one-on-one with someone who I regard as the greatest coach in the world, that should be sufficient for a professional footballer who has played, you know, accumulatively, God, what is it, two and a half thousand games of football in their lifetime. Mm. They should be able to absorb it. So for whatever reason, and I'm not saying this as a collective, of course, some did. Improvement of Sergio Aguero, it's, it's phenomenal over the course of a season, how he changed his game as the season went on, because he's a he's a very intelligent footballer, but some couldn't, and they'll be gone, and the players he'll bring in will be of. I mean, that's why someone like Danny Alves, that's no shock at all that he'd be looking at a player who he you know enjoyed so many great times with at Barcelona, because what Pep did at Barca was he redesigned football, and mm. Danny Alves put that into practice as, as you know as a right back. So for that role. It's no surprise at all that he'd be looking to bring him in, whether he's 34 or not. So I think, yeah, the players he'll be bringing in will be able to absorb his thinking and it will be his style of football to the max next season, whereas last year was just one big compromise. Uh, Let's talk about John Stones. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) United fans always want to talk about John Stones. (laughs) Well, I've, I've always, well... I don't think John Stones is the problem. I think it's the person who's next to John Stones. I don't yeah, think Otamendi's up to scratch. For some strange reason, I still think Pep Guardiola could turn Mangala into something interesting because he's so raw. Yeah. Um, let's talk about John Stones. What are your feelings towards him based on last season going forward? I think it was very disappointing last season for Stones, personally. On the surface, he is the archetypal Guardiola defender. He's a 21st century defender. He's thoroughly modern in, in the, and I think it that should be embraced the fact that he's English and he plays in, in the style that he does um, I think he's reined it in the kind of you know trying to play out from the back etc he can you know reach Rosette now and so that bodes well but he's got a big fight in his hands just to get a place next season this is by no means a given but you know City are after a centre back and they are after someone of the ilk of Van Dijk or Benucci. And if any company stays fit, it's really hard to envisage John Stones breaking through, you know, ahead of those two. So, yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see whether he can establish himself in the first team, first and foremost. And then beyond that, I'd be looking at more kind of, you know, consistency. There were several reasons for it, to be fair, last season. He does deserve some leeway. You know, there were injuries. There was a lot of attention put on him. So it, I think it'll be a lot easier for him in that regard now that that attention may just kind of drift away from him and onto other players. But even so, I, I don't want to be dramatic and say it's a make or break because it's not. But it veers in that direction next year. He really does need to kind of, you know, prove himself really because I know he's got it in him. I think a lot of people do. He, you know, a lot of people rate him very highly. But now he does need to start proving it. On a consistent level, you know, anyone, any defender is capable of having a storming game. You mentioned Otamendi there. I've seen Otamendi five, six, maybe even seven times last season where he looked 
world class. And I've seen five, six, seven, or eight occasions where he was a, you know, a calamity in waiting. You can't afford that at this level. You just can't afford to be that player. You have to have consistency. How many seasons do you think forty-seven and a half million pounds? I believe. How how, how many seasons do you think that's worth of chances? Two, three. That's a really good question. It's a really hard one to answer. Um, I think a lot depends, you know, like I say, on who comes in. Because, mm. of course, if you don't have sufficient kind of competition, then you're, you're likely to get more kind of leeway and more chances. But if we do sign someone of the calibre of Benucci, then, yeah, it's going to be a season for John Stones. I, I can't see it being beyond that, you know. If, if, if he has a repeat of last season, then I can't see him having a future at City. Wow. So that's short. That sounded a lot harsher than I intended, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, yeah, you, you had me thinking, like, well, where can he go then? <laughs> yeah. Like, because the, no one's going to offer that much money for him. If, if you have one or two bad years in a row like that, there's no way you're going to get 50 million back for him. Well, that's the thing. I mean, that's, it's a different subject, but it's worth exploring because I, I rarely hear this mentioned anywhere. And it's a bit kind of embarrassing to say so as a City fan. City fans get a lot, well, City the club, get a lot of stick for their transfer fees. I think that's a complete misnomer. I would defend that to the hills, and I won't bore you with it now, but, you know, you're looking at accelerated spending to kind of reach the level that we have from the position that we were, um, and just the transfer market as it is, and there's a lot of hypocrisy out there because there's other clubs who spend a great deal of money too. So I would defend that aspect to the hills. Where we don't get criticism and we really deserve criticism is how poorly we sell players. I mean, we just yes. spend so much on a player and then we're happy to let him go or we'll loan him or we'll pay half the wages. I mean, that reflects so badly on us. So when you say that about Johnny Stones, my God, another season of kind of mediocrity, no in City, well, just give us six million, we'll take it. You know, we deserve criticism <laughs> for that. You know, as as a as a Chelsea supporter, I can I can kind of relate to this. Where we would buy, let's say, Michael Essien for I think mm. it was twenty six, and we kept him way past his sell by date. Sorry, Carl, I know he's Ghanaian, but we, we we kept him way past his sell by date, and then you know we just release him free, like Flora Maluda, for instance, buy him for a high price, release him free, and it's like if at least get make some money off these guys. Just can't. I mean, Joe Hart at the moment, we can't get rid of him. We just cannot offload Joe Hart, the England goalkeeper. And I see kind of blues on Twitter pointing out a very genuine point this. If he was Manchester United goalkeeper, you better believe that there'll be clubs queuing up. And rightly so. And this is not a dig at United, quite the opposite. You know, it's well, there would be five or six clubs queuing up to spend 17 million, 18, whatever you're talking, 25 million for the England goalkeeper. Oh, we just can't sell our players. We can't even loan the guy out at the moment. I guess, I don't know if this is in a Chelsea context as well, because I brought up the point, but do you think being a City player still doesn't have the same amount of cachet as being mm. from Manchester United, from Real Madrid, Barcelona, Bayern Munich, yeah. to, to where they can sell their backups mm. for $20 million easy? But if you're a backup at Arsenal, maybe, or City, it's not as prestigious, so they, they don't come for you. Yeah, absolutely. That's a fair point. I think that will change uh, as time goes on, but we're mm -hmm. certainly not at that level yet. Yeah, um, and, and also, of course, there's the wages as well. I mean, Joe Hart's on 175,000 a week for a goalkeeper. Ooh. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he's living so, good. I wouldn't want to leave. <laughs> I don't want to leave. Keep me. 
eggs that try moving that you know it's kind of that's hard you know for a goalkeeper as well so yeah okay it's just 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 on goalkeepers i don't have this written down but seeing as you put it in my head bravo what happens with him i i believe willie caballero is coming to chelsea so thanks i guess um, <laughs> uh so you have joe hart and obviously the the benfica guys at edison yeah so what's what's going on with bravo what's going on with Hart? i should imagine that bravo will be our number two um although it's hard to tell i mean kind of pep clearly rates him and his footwork is exceptional it's just unfortunately he can't save shots which is a bit of a downside for a goalkeeper is he kind of um, going to be so, the reverse or just just quickly interject is he kind of going to be the reverse of what happened with him at barcelona where he'll be the cup goalkeeper to edison's league as like ter stegen did pep went out to abu dhabi you know a, a couple of months back and he spoke to the hierarchy and they basically mentioned in part of the conversation about a Champions League in a league. And whereas previous managers like Pellegrini and Mancini were very reverential and very kind of, you know, just nodding along and kind of, you know, to the superiors, Pep challenged them and said, right, as good a coach as I am with the players I have right now, I can't provide that. I can't have us challenging for the kind of Champions League and the league in one season. That's not possible. So how much do you want this? And basically he said, well, what I've been led to believe is I need two world-class players for each position. And so when you look at the goalkeeping position, you know, I wouldn't say that brother was world-class personally, but that's what the thinking would be that, you know, like people are talking about our forward line and if we get Alexis Sanchez and where would he fit in and all the rest of it, it could very conceivably be where on the, you know, Wednesday Champions League, We've got Sanchez and Aguero, and then on the kind of Saturday we've got Jesus and you know Sane, um, and in goal it could be where they're swapping mm. from Champions League to League, and so that's very conceivable. As for Joe Hart, I mean he's gone. He was gone the minute that you know Pep arrived. Yeah. It, it all happened last last summer. It's just that we can't get rid of him. So just... I mean, the last I heard was West Ham and how it was kind of you know we wanted half their wage, wages paid for and. So and, and of course there's even that far fetched one about United, whether if De Gea leaves that United have, have you know kind of stated to City we are kind of interested but not right now. So I don't know is is you know the honest answer there. I just know that he's still at the club and you know, I love Joe and he's a great keeper, he's a great shot stopper. Unfortunately he's only a great shot stopper if it's to his right. Um he's very weak to his left. And the fact that, you know, this is kind of sustained throughout his career is criminal. The fact that he's not addressed it or not been able to address it is a major failing. So if you hit the ball low to his left, it'll go in more often than it doesn't. Interesting. Only only knowledge you could get from a City fan, I think. Because I just look at him like, yeah, he, he seems good. He looks, he's huge. He looks like when he makes himself big, he's really big. One-on-one, mm, um, he's very good. And, you know... Of course, he's you know he's a top class keeper. I'm not denying that, and you know I wish him very well indeed. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised in say two years' time if he starts to go the way of you know the Carsons and the kind of uh, Rob Green the Fosters. Yeah, Rob mm. Green exactly. And, and, <laughs> Jesus you know, Christ! Is he going to be England's number one for the next year's World Cup, or is it, or is it already Butlins, or is it already? Who, who's the other guy? Ah, Pickford. Uh, well, yeah, and there's Forster as well, but Forster's had a poor year, hasn't he? By all accounts. So, um, but yeah. there's, there's, you know, there's some great ones coming through. I mean, Pickford is just the business. He's going to be the business, isn't he? Um, he's going distribution, like, jeez. 
Yeah, yeah, and, and it's such an age as well. So, uh, twenty-three. Mm. He's got the next the next four years. John Pickford's ascendancy, whereas the next four years, I would think, would be Joe Hart's you know descent. To, to what level, I don't know. Um, this is also from Brahimsky. Just quickly to you, Sanchez, Aguero, Sane, Jesus point. Um, if Sanchez signs for City, does the optimal system involve him as the main centerpiece of the team, similar to Messi in 2011? Yeah, so, I think that's definitely an option. Whether take, he does or not, who knows. I mean, one another factor of last season, uh, Daniel, as well, was the fact that when I did it, when I do a, a City pod and we do it, you know, once a week, and we would try and predict the team, and even as, as you run into kind of week ten onwards, it was a lottery. You know, you'd never get it right. <laughs> Because this is Pep Guardiola to try and predict him is just you know, it's it's a fool's errand. So um, that's certainly an option. That's something that I could conceive happening. I, I just think there'll be a lot of. I, I don't think there'll be a consistent way of playing up front next season in terms of for personnel. I think there'll be a lot of switching around, a lot of swapping around, and what he. Ha- I mean, for me personally, I don't want to see. And I don't think this will happen, but I don't want to see the kind of progress of Jesus and Sané threatened in any way mm. by Sanchez's arrival. I, I really want Sanchez to arrive. Kind of but like I, a Rashford-Ibrahimovic <laughs> situation? Exactly like that, yeah. Okay. I mean, Sané, you know, he plays out wide anyway, so there's no bother there. But with Jesus, who can play out wide, but so can Rashford. But where's Rashford's best position? It, it's, it's central. Uh, and the same goes for Jesus. And so at that age, you want them to be you know, kind of excelling and enjoying their football and feeling, you know, more and more confident every week and being the main man in their head. So, uh, you know, I don't want that threatened. Do you do you think Pep's, as, as you suggest, that is kind of chopping and changing and do you think that's conducive to success? Because if you look at Chelsea, for instance, last season when we won the league, it was basically the same team out every week. Hardly, hardly a few changes, maybe suspensions, a few injuries here and there. But it's the same team, and you win the league with most wins. I think it was ninety-three points or something like that. Do you think Pep can change the team week in, week out, and have and find success where the team gels? Well, that that was my biggest bugbear of last year. I've got no problem with kind of chopping and changing midfield or up front. But what Pep was doing last season was chopping and changing at the back. Um, and I think there was only one occasion for the whole season where he played the same back four, you know, two games consecutively. That's ridiculous. It is. It's absolutely incredible. It's and again, I'd even extend it to fullbacks. I mean, I can't think what example I'm thinking of here, but which was the club where basically they just alternated their fullbacks every week and it worked for them. Um, so it can work, but centre backs, not a chance. Just get your two, <laughs> play them every week. We build up a relationship, but you know, we learn from each other's movement and kind of, you know, where the, the, the strengths and failings are. To swap those around every week was madness, and it cost us dear. I mean, like, if sticking with Louise and Cahill works, I couldn't imagine how, like, Stones and... Well, you can't really stick with company because he gets injured all the time. But Stones and Otamendi, like, that should work. Like, just if you keep it the same. And, yeah, absolutely. Know. So yeah, you, would, and, and, you, you you would have kind of the ball playing silky stones with the more hard man big challenge out of Mendy guy. Um, so <laughs> uh, this is from at Pack Mouse, who's Avi on Twitter is of Jesus, which is interesting. Do you think Pep would be sacked if next season was similar to last season? 
I wrote something recently where I said this was a defining summer for both Jose and Pep. And I honestly believe that who loses out of those two won't be at their club at the end of next season. So uh, my answer to that is yes. I don't, I, don't, I don't think he'd be at the club if we have a repeat of last season. And as good as the season ultimately was for United last year with winning the Europa League and winning the League Cup, and I'm not saying that you know they were poor, but I think a lot of pressure is on both managers this year to finish in at least the top two. And if one of those two are outside of that top two, their, their jobs are on the line. You know, we frequently discuss Pep versus Jose on this podcast. Our folk <laughs> is, a, is a known, he's a known Jose Mourinho zealot. And I am a, I don't particularly care for Jose or his tactics. I think the majority of non-City fans have City pegged as favourites for the title. As much as we'd like to see Pep Guardiola fail and have vindication that he only he's only good because he had the best players in the world, we'd also like to see him do it. Right, let me put this as a percentage. 65% of me wants him to fail. Yeah. I really despise Barcelona. I think I'm close to like 90. 35% of me really wants me to, wants, to, wants him to succeed because I want to be able to come home every single Saturday, watch match of the day and watch space football. Yeah. I want to be able to watch football that is just out of this world. I want to be able to watch De Bruyne and Jesus and Sane link up in that weird deft slight touch football like Kevin De Bruyne when he's on top of form is capable of doing such amazing things it's a fantastic contrast mm. and also you know I want Mourinho to do well because I want United to do well uh, I think my, my question my counterpoint to you Stephen is do you think so we know for a fact that he only did three years at Barca he could only manage two to three at Bayern Munich and he frequently just gets one year contracts over and over and over again mm. Do you think if the season goes well, Pep created a dynasty at City? Got no evidence to base this on. Purely instinctive. My kind of feeling is that if he does well at City, and I genuinely believe that he's just... And this is not a reflection on City in comparison to Bayern or, or, or Barca whatsoever. It's purely based on who he is now as a person. I'm just kind of watching countless interviews and reading countless books about the man my gut instinct tells me that it will be at City if it goes well for the next three seasons so it'll be four in total so an extra year basically I can't see him lasting beyond that by the nature of the man he'll be looking for new challenges to explore mm-hmm. um, but at the same time I, I yeah I just think he'd be that would be certainly as regards to City's perspective that would be sufficient time to implement kind of style of football and kind of a reputation, which is incredibly important in football as well. I mean, we've touched on this earlier in the pod as well. You have a reputation of a club. Yeah, and then he'd leave with, you know, a, a god to us. Um, <laughs> and also, I mean, the youth players at City right now, you know, they are good, but some might break through. You might see a few games here and there next season. But the levels below are potentially, potentially phenomenal. So, in four years' time, you'd be hopeful of them breaking through. Uh, and then whoever basically takes over from Pope Guardiola will have you know, a rich palette to, to, to work from. Interesting. So we have three more questions. I have another one that I'm going to add. So we'll do these kind of quick. Um, where does Guardiola rank amongst the greatest managers of all time from Mason underscore Boris? <laughs> Top 10? Yeah. Yeah, top ten. 
I mean, for me, the yeah. truly great managers are the managers who redefine and kind of uh, and dominate an era uh, and change football. And so he certainly kind of ticks all of those three boxes. I, I, I can't give him like I'm, – I'm sure a lot of people would think top five-ish, but I kind of feel like, like kind of Carl hinted before, the squads he had at Barcelona and Bayern Munich were so good. And I know this is a tired argument that people run through, but to have Messi, to have Iniesta, to have Xavi, Puyol, you buy Eto and Henri, and then you go to a team that has that won a treble with Lam and Lewandowski and just all these Robin, Ribery. How much credit does the manager get? Yes, it's it's great that you can implement a philosophy where the, where you maximize the talent of the players you have. That's great, but you need the talent of the players to maximize in the first place. Mm. Um, so yes, he kind of revolutionized the game, and I say that through gritted teeth. You know that I that I give him some credit, but to put him as like the greatest manager ever, I feel like you need to do a little bit more work. Um, and I feel like Half Hope always says, "Can you manage Scunthorpe at least once before I give oh, you credit?" That, uh, I, I, I don't walk with him down that road, but I do understand the premise of like. That argument gets me so annoyed. Like can, all the criteria can, can you struggle? To, to... Can can you manage Dagenham and Redbridge, please? No, because the criteria to manage a top six club are very different from the criteria yeah. to manage uh, a bottom six club. Like Big Sam couldn't manage Man City because Big Sam's job is. I'm going to keep the ball simple. I'm going to G up some of these slightly average players to play 20% more than average and get them to win X amount of things. Like similar thing with Pulis. Pulis, it, Pulis comes in and he goes, I'm going to show up your defense. I'm going to play loads of six foot five players. We don't have any youngsters. And the, and the whole plan is once we reach 40, we're going to work hard until we reach 40 points. And after 40 points, we can stop. <laughs> Yo, that's Pulis so true. Is, like, yo, Pulis's defense is four six foot four center backs, yo. <laughs> yeah, uh, like the, the the you know, Pulis has, has no never had to manage bro. manage a team that has to play two fixtures in a week, or has to manage a team that has to juggle four competitions. So to mm. say that he can't manage Scunthorpe, well, I mean, he's never meant to manage Scunthorpe, uh, Football Three Six Five, and they basically described it as if you think of football clubs as you know, some people are a lot more comfortable driving sedans and some people are a lot more comfortable driving SUVs or supercars. A club like Barcelona and a club like Bayern Munich are Formula One cars. What they do well, they do very, 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 very well. And what they can't do, they just can't do whatsoever because there's so much money, there's so much whatever. So you can't have, we haven't won in six games at Manchester City because now Manchester City's thing is we want a quadruple. Whereas in charge of Burnley, yeah, you can only win all of your home games. Mm. Different strokes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> He's probably top five in the world right now. Definitely top five in the world now, but they, they said yeah, all top, time. Top five in the world right now and top ten of all time. Also, also I kind of want to see him do it in an, in, on, a, on an international level. So manage Spain or maybe Catalonia if he wants to. <laughs> this is from Sam Bradley at Fly To Me Review. Uh, why on earth are we, we being City, even considering buying Danny Alves? Surely youth is key, and what's happening with Sanchez? Um, I tagged him into my reply before because I've, I've written about this very subject today um, with Danny Alves. Um, I think it just makes perfect sense. I also believe we're, we're going in for Kyle Walker. Um, 
And so, again, going back to what we referred to earlier about one playing Champions League, one playing league, uh, I think, you know, even though he's 27, Kyle Walker is not the finished product yet. He's close to being the finished product. Um, Danny Alves has been the finished product finished product now for the last 10 years he's been the greatest right back in the world for the last decade so Walker or whoever City bring in will learn a substantial amount from him um, and also like just going back to the box that, but go ahead <laughs> what's that sorry <laughs> you said uh, Alves was the best right back for the past 10 years I said I, I feel like Philip Lom would argue that but go ahead yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, yeah, I'll go along that. I mean, Lam is also kind of, you know, one of the greatest kind of just all-round players, isn't he, in midfield as well. And and, just, and again, going back to what we referred to earlier, you know, that's you know, Pep with the players he's inherited because what we were saying about earlier with the kind of intelligence of football is to absorb his thinking. Philip mm. Lam is just right up there, isn't he? He's, he's a, a footballing professor. Um, mm. But yeah, going back to Alvarez, I think for a season or for two seasons, it makes perfect sense. And then you're looking at five million, you're looking at peanuts in the, in the modern kind of era, and he would be able to perform exactly the role that Pep wants from that kind of you know position. So um, I'm all for it. Old school uh, Manchester City fans. So let's talk about Main Road. Um, so I'll 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 offer up to you my first the first time I ever heard of Manchester City. Um, it was '96. And I think you just got promoted via the playoffs from Division 2. You had Nicky Weaver in goal. Um, uh, yeah, 1999, right? 99, right. So 99. And I'm flicking through Match Magazine, which is one of the early, you know, full oh, magazines yeah. you read if you're less than 10 years old. And it was the playoff special. And I'm reading it going, there's a second Manchester club? <laughs> <laughs> you're in, you played in Sky Blue, you had Nicky Weaver and I'm a London-based Manchester United fan, and I had no idea. I, one, I had no idea there was another Manchester club, and two, I had no idea I wasn't supposed to like you. <laughs> just to follow Manchester City through the Football League, because I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. You're just Manchester 2 in my head. <laughs> so I thought it's fine. Oh, you got Kevin Keegan. Oh, you got Anaka. You got McManaman. That's cute. So I guess my question to you is, as a City fan, how do you find your relationship with United fans? Well... I've got to say, and I'm not I, honestly, honestly, I'm not rubbing it in here and, and kind of, you know, but this, this is the truth. Um, the Sergio Aguero goal, that was just an exorcism for me. <laughs> I mean, it really was. I, I, honestly, it really was because in the season since, my relationship with, towards United has just calmed hugely. I mean, I'm just much more level headed because <laughs> until then. <laughs> Um, you know, I, I, I hated United. I, I regarded United as words. I, you know, I'll, well, just to give you an example, I regarded you as evil. <laughs> we are. I, we I, are. I've, I've said it many times on this podcast. We're the big bad guys of football. Yeah, yeah. And just kind of growing up, I just learned, you know, from a very young age um, to, to hate you. Um, and... That never went. And then, of course, then the, the area of dominance under Ferguson. And so we were just cast into the shadow. Um, you, you said that, actually, about kind of following City and, and kind of seeing as Manchester 2. Because I remember when, in 99, when a United friend of mine, uh, obviously that was the year you won the treble, and 
he then said, right, I want you to win the, the playoffs because you're my second team now. And this is a guy who used to hate City, but we'd fallen to such depths that he basically had adopted us <laughs> at this kind of, as a pet club almost. And although I bet bore him no malice, that kind of really rankled with me. And I thought, oh my God, how bad we are now that you know we're not even seen as, as a rival in any way, shape or form. So that's what made it particularly sweet when we kind of rose to prominence and kind of you know took you on on the kind of big stage again. But yeah, I mean, I used to hate United because I'm a City fan. I'm supposed to hate United. Um, my dad's a United fan. I used to go to Old Trafford a lot as a kid. So, you know, there's that. But um, that, that's Aguero goal. Just something exploded in the head. All the resentment, all the bitterness. And United fans, you know, take the mickey out of City fans for being bitter. I certainly was. I was a bitter bloom, and that just went in in a, in a heartbeat. Uh, and now I'm just I just enjoy the rivalry, um, and I enjoy the football, and I enjoy the banter. And it's you know it still means as much, but now there's no kind of hatred or negativity from me. Hmm. Yeah, fair. Uh, I've never met a City fan where there's been legitimate needle. Hmm. Hmm. United fans I talk to hate Liverpool more, or they hate Arsenal more, or they hate Leeds more. Yeah. You know, depending on their age, and in t- you know the big derby for me is when we play Arsenal. Yeah, the Wenger's and the Nineties. That that's my one, and I'm sure if you see me on Twitter, I'm, that's the game where I'm throwing the most jabs on the internet. Is that a byproduct um, of you being from London? Yeah, that's yeah, part of product of being in London. Part of the product of just you know I'm a black Man United fan, so I supported them because of Dwight York and Andy Cole. So therefore, and I talk to most tend to be the poor Arsenal because of Thierry Henry. Mm, yeah, black Liverpool fans who supported Liverpool because of John Barnes. Um, so that's those sorts of circles, or black Chelsea fans who support Chelsea because of Drogba. <laughs> I, I will say as well, just from my, my kind of uh, how I've kind of eased up on United is is part of, partly due to my job as well because uh, I'm very privileged enough to have, have interviewed a lot of former players and one of the, the jobs I do, and and I talk to Dwight York quite a lot, and you know if, if I didn't talk to him. I would just directly associate him with those those times of just basically, you know, success with United while City were in the doldrums. But he's just a fan. He's so funny. He's, he's gold. <laughs> really, he's gold. I mean, that guy is the genuine art book. He doesn't care less. <laughs> and, yeah, I love the fella. I, I always enjoy, kind of, I always look forward to, to interviewing him. Um, and so, yeah, when you get, obviously get, and Paul Ince as well. Paul Ince was a gentleman. And, you know, all the reputation that kind of went with him as a player and, you know, rival fans would, would hate on Ince. But, you know, I've, I've chatted with him twice and he's been fantastic both times. So that's played a part maybe as well. It's kind of interesting. And, and time's a healer as well. <laughs> yeah. yeah, also, we're all scoring a goal at the death when uh, Manchester thought they won the league. <laughs> it just seems like a healer. Yeah, that was the best healer. That was certainly the best medicine, yeah. I when that goal went in, I jumped up in the air, shook for a split second, fell, and I didn't get up for about thirty seconds. Oh man! And then I I went you upstairs fainted? and I changed into. Did you faint? Apparently, I fainted. Uh, <laughs> and then apparently, I, I like apparently I got up, I went upstairs to my bedroom and changed into all black. <laughs> <laughs> the best part about that goal is the Balotelli assist, just because it was him. Yeah, it's the only assist he's got in his career. Only assist he got in the Premier League. Yeah, and you're still not sure 
no matter what he says, because you know he's not going to say so if it was meant for David Silva or not. You know, he, of course he's going to say, "Oh, that's what I meant to do." It, it was he was probably be. shooting, knowing Balotelli. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but when you watch it again, you really can't tell whether it is meant for David Silva or Sergio Aguero. So it could actually have been a, a terrible assist, what just very fortuitously went went right. Mm. So my, my my last question was going to be kind of an ode to to Double H. We probably should have done the other one. The, the last question that we just did last, but what's going on with Kelechi Iheanacho? Is he going to West Ham or what's going on? Please tell, please tell me that his career is ruined so I can put this as the, as the beginning of our podcast. The, the weird thing with Kelechi is I, I don't think he's got a future at City and, and I think that's quite evident now. Um, but the weird thing is whoever signs him is guaranteed 20 to 25 goals a season and yet he'll also exasperate fans because you know he has kind of terrible control i mean the ball just bounces off him at all angles worse than lukaku or better than lukaku about level par i'd say yeah (laughs) yeah but you still don't know how you know he could progress he could kind of develop he could get better um you know that's not beyond the realms of um kind of impossibility given his age but right now i think someone like west ham or leicester would be It'd be a great signing for them. Yeah, just just one from my Nigerian friend. Really quick fire questions. Main road or the Etihad? Oh, main road all day long. Uh, Sean Gota? <laughs> um, oh, that's heart and head, isn't it? <laughs> head, Sergio, and heart. And uh, favourite player of, of uh, City history? Paul Lake and... Yeah, I'm glad you asked me because if there's anyone out there who's not aware of Paul Lake, check him out. There'll only be a few clips. Basically, he got badly injured when he was 21. He would have he would have been in the mid uh, midfield of Gaza if neither player had suffered such horrendous injuries for 10, 15 years, and England would have won the World Cup. He was an unbelievable footballer. My my quick fire question would be: Where is City going to finish next season if um, Pep gets his fullbacks? And we assume that the signings from last season and this season kind of pan out and they download Pep's complicated information. Um, yeah, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to nick that, mate. <laughs> Go for it. Go for it. I love that downloading it. Yeah. It, I, I think we'll be second to Chelsea. You, so, so you believe a Chelsea repeat. Are, are, are you another one who believes in this expectation is the root of our heartache so you don't put... City gonna win the league? Like I've never said Chelsea have won the league are gonna win the league yeah. win the league in my life because I'm not There's jinxing anything. It, it's <laughs> yeah, also like, a response as well to kind of how little credit Chelsea received, and already I'm hearing about how kind of you know it's it not one season wonders, but how they won't repeat it again, and and that just really annoys me. I just think I'm more worried that Conte will get sacked. It seems the trend. Yes. So. Yeah, but if Conte stays, potentially there's an empire build in there. So, um, yeah, I'll go for Chelsea and then City. Okay. So, Steve, man, thanks for coming on our podcast, man. It was a joy. Absolute man. pleasure. Yeah. Uh, where, where can the people find you again? The Daisy Cutter one on Twitter. And I just write for various places, betting sites and kind of 442 and what have you. Great. So, Carl, give your details. Uh, I'm Anchorman616 on Twitter. And I'm ranked for Shortlist right now. So, check out Shortlist. Are you going to tell the people your your announcement that you teased on Thursday or or no? Not yet. Not yet. All right. All right. I, I was just about to out you. 
But then I was like, I should ask. <laughs> I should ask. <laughs> but yeah, I'm at Daniel to look on Twitter. You can follow Talking Tactics at Talking Tactics. Um, we're on Instagram, Facebook, social media everywhere. Uh, we do this every Tuesday. Double H is at Have Hope Hut, by the way, and does Have Hope Hut on, on YouTube. We might be back on Thursday. Watch this space. But yeah, thanks for listening. Thanks again to Stephen for coming on. Talking Tactics podcast, sometimes funny. Sometimes serious. But always football. See you guys next week. Peace. Sports Social Podcast Network.